Welcome to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking about the United States conducting a drone strike on its way out of Afghanistan, killing a family of people, including several young children. Also going to be talking about some labor struggles happening inside Ohio and uh, having a discussion about the impacts of Hurricane Ida on Louisiana, the Gulf Coast, and how it reflects on climate change. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, President. Joe Biden made yet another speech about Afghanistan last night. And as much as I wish he would just stop talking, he actually said some things that surprised me in a good way. He said, quote, I simply do not believe that the safety and security of America is enhanced by continuing to deploy thousands of American troops and spending billions of dollars a year in Afghanistan. Well, duh, Mr. President, we anti-war advocates have been saying this forever, and not just about Afghanistan, but I guess it was nice that Biden finally said it. But I think the most important thing he said in his speech yesterday was the acknowledgement of how much money the U.S. has spent on the war in Afghanistan. Biden said, quote, after more than $2 trillion spent in Afghanistan, costs that researchers at Brown University estimated would be over $300 million a day for 20 years in Afghanistan, for two decades. Yes, the American people should hear this. $300 million a day for two decades. You take the number of $1 trillion, as many say, that's still $150 million a day for two decades. And what have we lost as a consequence in terms of opportunities? Well, I'm a little flabbergasted that he was honest about the money, but I'll give him credit where it's due. It was a good thing that he did say what he did about the money, that is. Because everyone who is facing eviction now, everyone who is homeless, everyone who can't afford health care, everyone who is drowning in student loan debt, everyone who is fighting for $15 an hour federal minimum wage should hear just how much money this country has spent every single day over the past 20 years on a war in another country. Every single day, $300 million. While politicians told them that the things that they want and need to live a dignified life in this country are too expensive. When people demanded Medicare for all or free college tuition or canceling student loan debt or providing actually affordable housing or raising the minimum wage, politicians immediately asked the dumb question, how are we going to pay for it? But Joe Biden basically just validated what we anti-war activists have been saying for more than 20 years and not just about Afghanistan, that if the U.S. would stop funding war, that $300 million a day could easily fund everything we ask for and need and more. But that's all the credit I'm giving Joe Biden for this speech, because the same comments are an indictment against Joe Biden himself, who, remember, campaigned on not supporting most of those things. And I also am not going to give him any more credit because he also didn't say 
that the U.S. should never have been in Afghanistan in the first place. He didn't say that the war was illegal. He didn't say that it was condemned by the United Nations. He mentioned the 2,448 U.S. service members killed and over 20,000 injured, but he didn't mention the 66,000 Afghan security forces, the 47,245 Afghan civilians, the 444 aid workers, the 72 journalists killed during the illegal 20-year war. He mentioned the 13, quote, lives lost this week, but he didn't point out that 10 of those lives were Afghan civilians, several children among them members of one family who were the victims of the U.S. drone strike gone astray on what they claim was an ISIS-K target, which proves yet again that there's no such thing as a smart bomb. And then, of course, the imperialist strategy of leaving Afghanistan was exposed by Biden in the same speech when he said the U.S. is, quote, engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with the challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. We have to shore up American competitiveness to meet these new challenges and the competition for the 21st century. And there's nothing China or Russia would rather have would want more in this competition than the United States to be bogged down another decade in Afghanistan. Ah, there it is, the heart of the matter. As I've said before, and I will always say, of course, the U.S. should have left Afghanistan. Biden was right to withdraw ground forces. But let's be clear that this wasn't done because Biden or Trump, who made the deal with the Taliban to withdraw, actually have any moral commitment to reallocating all that money from war to us or ending military conflict in the world or embarking on a path of peace. Oh, no, that's not what's going to happen. And Biden just admitted it. It's great that Biden admitted all the money the U.S. has thrown after death and destruction in another country over the past 20 years. But don't think that it will now be freed up to make life better for you and me here. It won't. All that money will now be spent on fighting this ginned up war with China and Russia for continued U.S. imperialist dominance. So the U.S.'s forever war hasn't actually ended at all. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. Those are today's talking points, and you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman, and as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We are now happy to be joined by David Swanson, activist, journalist, radio host, executive director of World Beyond War, and author of the new book, Leaving World War II Behind. David, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. And David, in in the final days before the official August 31st pullout, of the United States from Afghanistan, the U.S. actually conducted a drone strike in Kabul that uh, killed 10 members of one family that included uh, seven children. Washington is saying that uh, they were targeting a a suspected suicide bomber with ISIS Khorasan, who posed what they call an imminent threat to the Afghanistan airport. And I mean, the youngest of these victims were uh, only uh, two years old. And I just wanted to read uh, the names and give the ages of 
the victims that we know at this point. I mean, there's nine-year-old Farzad, 10-year-old Faisal, 40-year-old Zemaray, 20-year-old Zamir, 30-year-old Nasir, 3-year-old Benjamin, 4-year-old Armin, and 2-year-old Samaya. And I mean, according to the brother of one of the victims, they were, quote, an ordinary family and said, we are not ISIS or Daesh, and this was a family home where my brothers lived with their families. And I mean, David, this just feels like kind of a a, a tragic distillation of what is really a a 40-year conflict that the U.S. has instigated in Afghanistan. We we often hear it sort of described as a a 20-year conflict, and even I have said this a number of times, but I mean, the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan goes back quite a ways, and I'm just sort of generally curious, you know, how you're sort of seeing this drone strike on this family uh, within the broader context of the pullout of the U.S. military in Afghanistan, the control of the Taliban now over the country, and how it sort of factors into what uh, Washington has been doing in that country for years now. Well, I very much appreciate you uh, focusing on that topic, focusing on victims of senseless murder uh, of the sort that Uh, according to the promises of U.S. President Joe Biden, will continue, uh, and which in the understanding of the U.S. government and U.S. media does not count as war-making. So the the missiles may be flying into Afghanistan and blowing up families on a daily basis, but the war is over. Uh, Two different questions, apparently. And of all the things that we've lost, Uh, in the past 20 years, uh, the millions of lives, the millions of people who've lost their homes and been injured and traumatized, the trillions of dollars spent and the trillions of dollars worth of property and infrastructure destroyed, the damage to the natural environment and the rule of law, the the militarization of governments and police. We've also lost the the ability to care. Uh, It's the political... A statement now to care whether these little children were blown to bits uh, for no earthly reason. Uh, and the only reason that we're hearing about these particular children, uh, rather than thousands of others through the course of the past 20 years, and as you say, 40 years, uh, is because it's a side story to the big story of, of the past couple of weeks in the U.S. media, the ending of the longest war. If it weren't the ending, which isn't really an ending, of the longest war, which is only the longest war if Native Americans are not human beings, uh, then you wouldn't have what media coverage you're getting of this particular drone murder because the drone murders have been going on for decades uh, and are going to continue, according to what President Biden is is telling us he will not forgive, he will not forget, he will hunt you down like a barbarian. Uh, this is the, the madness that has been normalized by 20 years of this. Yeah, and really, David, 20 years is actually not even accurate, you know, in regard to the U.S. Uh, involvement and military action in Afghanistan. We want to talk about barbarism. This all could have been avoided. We wouldn't be having this conversation if in November of 2001, when the Taliban offered to surrender, 
the United States said, okay, but that's not what happened. So we're talking really about 40 years, if not longer, of the U.S. involvement in Afghanistan. And, you know, just it is so much a story of the U.S. imperialist capitalist opposition to leftist Marxist policies that were uh, about to be, well, that were implemented, that people voted on in Afghanistan that would have actually addressed some of the issues in the country that this government now says they are so much, uh, uh, such huge champions of, like women's rights and education and all that. But really, I mean, it was the United States in, in 1978, after the Marxist People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan overthrew the reactionary government, and the United States didn't like it. So this, this is not a 20-year engagement. This is a 40-year engagement. And I think that fact that is not talked about is really important in this conversation about Afghanistan, David. Uh, I agree, of course. Uh, it's hard enough to get people to find Afghanistan on a map or recall what happened, uh, you know, six months ago. But to the extent that we can get them to recall what happened over 40 years ago and the uh, the bragging <laughs> by people like Brzezinski uh, of what they did to provoke the Soviet Union, uh, and then the funding and arming and supporting and, and glorifying uh, through the 1980s of some of the same groups that not only ended up uh, attacking the United States uh, in the crimes of September 11th, 2001, uh, but have been continued uh, to be supported in recent years in places like Syria and Yemen, where they've been on the right side. Uh, all of which is, is why uh, I believe, though very few people seem to agree with me, that the, that the Taliban's uh, strategy uh, is not completely insane uh, and that it is uh, to, to aim at becoming uh, a government supported and armed by the United States in the coming years as the, as the enemy of common enemies, uh, as, you know, as good on human rights as Saudi Arabia. Uh, and so forth. Uh, and, you know, when you look at the U.S. policy basically not changing over more than 40 years, it can't be that it was all about Marxism any more than it can be that it's all about the terrorism that it's been increasing under the banner of decreasing it. Uh, in part, it's, it's the weapons profits, in part, it's the political corruption and the media but in part, it's, it's an insane urge to dominate the world uh, that, that just has not gone away, uh, is, is as present in, in President Biden's latest speech uh, as, uh, as ever. Uh, you know, we will not have wars uh, for nation building. Terrific. We'll have wars for, you know, bullying China. We'll have wars for revenge against people who live near, uh, you know, some evildoer. We'll have wars for for profit, and we'll have wars for for uh, you know for uh, all the 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 usual uh, actual reasons we have wars. So they'll be a bit more honest, but they won't be any they won't be any less murderous. Yeah, and I mean, you said it all when you said that what's really driving this is this insane urge to dominate the world on the part of the United States, David. I mean, this drive to uh, expand the U.S. empire, to consume all the people's lands and resources. 
of the earth. And you mentioned Zbigniew Brzezinski uh, a little earlier, and this was someone who was, you know, President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor in, in 1979. And I believe what you were referencing was uh, an interview that he gave in 1998 to a French magazine called Le Nouvel Observateur, where he really just, I mean, uh, you know, basically just uh, 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 spilled the beans and, and actually told the truth about what was really happening or what really happened, rather, in Afghanistan during that period, and not in a sense to, you know, express regret for what he and the United States government did, but but really in a way bragging about how it played out. And so uh, uh, when sort of asked about this and his role in it, he said, quote, yes, according to the official version of history, CIA aid to the Mujahideen began during 1980. That is to say, after the Soviet army invaded, in his words, invaded Afghanistan on December 24th, 1979. But the reality, closely guarded until now, is completely otherwise. Indeed, it was July 3rd, 1979, that President Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And that very day, I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that, in my opinion, this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. And when the interviewer asked him if he regretted anything that happened with the U.S. and Afghanistan in that time, Brzezinski said, regret what? That secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap. And you want me to regret it? The day that the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to President Carter essentially saying, we now have the opportunity of giving to the USSR its Vietnam War. And Brzezinski goes on to say, David, that he actually thinks it was worth it to support these extremist groups uh, like the Mujahideen and the Taliban if it meant um, hastening the fall of the Soviet Union. And so we have someone who was directly involved in U.S. intervention into Afghanistan saying straight up, they don't care that they were supporting uh, terrorists and extremists because that helps them further their ends. And I mean, you know, we don't just see that in Afghanistan. I mean, we saw it in Syria. We saw it in Libya. I mean, the United States has a long and, and deep history of doing this. And, and that makes me think about what you uh, mentioned earlier about this, this military pullout of the United States from Afghanistan being framed as an end, but not really being an end. And, and so, I mean, I was uh, hoping you could sort of expound upon that because it seems that the U.S. seemingly has the same interest in Afghanistan. It's just after all this time of open conflict, maybe it seems to want to, I don't know, go about it a different way or something. But what do you think is the strategic thrust with the U.S. and, and even doing this pullout in this way? Well, you know, Brzezinski, well into this latest war on Afghanistan, meaning the past two decades, uh, was open uh, and public and giving speeches at the U.S. Capitol about the need uh, to, to resist uh, any influence from the U.S. public, uh, which, of course, wanted to end this war, has wanted to end this war for over 18 years and is now getting blamed by the Washington Post uh, columnists you know, for exercising democratic power in finally ending a war uh, in the name of democracy. Uh, Brzezinski was open about wanting a pipeline, wanting bases, 
wanting weapons positioned, wanting geostrategic power and global domination. Uh, and there wasn't any more any mention of the Soviet Union. So there are always, there's always this, you know, array of interests, uh, but it never seems to add up. You always have to add in there the simple, irrational drive to dominate the planet. Uh, and, and when he initially uh, took those steps where he, that he bragged about provoking the Soviet Union. This was over 20 years after Eisenhower uh, had, you know, supposedly warned everyone against military spending, as he had done prior to taking office as well, you know, sort of bookending his office during which he engaged in massive military spending because of the Soviets. Uh, well, it, they've gotten bolder now because yesterday President Joe Biden gave a speech lamenting all of the military spending on the war on Afghanistan while simultaneously pushing the U.S. Congress to increase military spending despite ending the war on Afghanistan, which has the bipartisan support of, uh, of the Democrats, of the chair of the House Armed So-Called Services Committee, uh, wants to increase well beyond uh, you know, another $30 billion or so beyond what Biden wants. Uh, and the Republicans uh, in Congress who want a little bit more than that. Uh, so there's great harmony, lack of gridlock, you know, nice uh, amicable uh, operations on Capitol Hill. But it's it, it, it's without any uh, any basis or any need for any basis. It, it just rolls on of its own accord. Military spending grows uh, organically, and it doesn't even matter if you're ending a war at the moment. Yeah. And that's the key point, I think, that, you know, this war in Afghanistan has ended and military spending, interestingly, hasn't been reduced, isn't going to be reduced. All of that money spent isn't going to be reallocated to the people. And the high cost that has been paid for this U.S. military action in Afghanistan over these decades among the Afghan people. 250,000 Afghans died, 71,000 civilians since the country was invaded by the U.S. in October 2001. And this had nothing to do with the World Trade Center or, you know, the, the September 11 attacks. It had everything to do with everything that we just talked about. And, and you know, not to mention, of course, that U.S. politicians always bring up the U.S. military personnel who were killed or wounded in this war. But, you know, the war in Afghanistan is over, but U.S. war is not, David. So, I mean, how do we how do we account for what was done to the Afghans in this decades long U.S. military uh, aggression? And what can we expect? from this new ramped up U.S. war against, as Biden said in his speech now, China and Russia, which looks to be a cold war for now, but we know it's not going to stay that way. Well, you know, the official counts of casualties uh, are based on reports that happen to have been made of particular deaths. Uh, and those collecting these statistics openly admit that they are radical undercounts of whatever the reality might be. And when there have been scientific surveys done of deaths and, and injuries, including in Iraq, uh, the, the actual total was about 12 times what the reported uh, deaths had been. And back in the 
war in Guatemala, when a serious study was done, uh, it found 20 times what the reported deaths had actually been. Uh, and so the, the, and because there have been no scientific studies in Afghanistan of, of what the death toll has been, that's the first thing there ought to be. We ought to know. Uh, but, you know, our best, our best estimates uh, based on the available information put the deaths in Iraq uh, at 2.4 million and in Afghanistan plus Pakistan at 1.2 million. Add another quarter million in Libya, one and a half million in Syria, 0.65 million in Somalia and 0.18 million in Yemen and top that off with 0. 0.0007 I'm sorry, two zeros, point zero zero seven million deaths uh, by U.S. troops. And you're talking about 5.917 million deaths in these wars in the past 20 years. These are direct, violent deaths, not the starvation, not the freezing in the refugee camps, the direct, violent deaths. Uh, and so the U.S. deaths, 0.1% of the deaths, but 95% of the media coverage, this leaves the U.S. public imagining these wars to be dramatically less horrible than they are, and imagining that the United States military has been sacrificing and wondering why the Afghan people aren't grateful. Uh, and so getting these facts out, I think, would be the first, the first step. And I, I would like to see education centers set up around the United States where these refugees coming in from Afghanistan are able to educate the U.S. public locally, face-to-face, -face, on how to find Afghanistan on a map and, and what's been done to it for, for the past 40 years and more. Definitely. I mean, such death, such destruction, such suffering wrought by the U.S. war machine. And I mean, it's, I don't think, an accident that the reality of it has been kept from the U.S. public because if the American people were more aware of what was really happening in Afghanistan and all these other countries, well, then they very well could be an uprising against it, which is why I think we have to continue to build the anti-war and the anti-imperialist movement to really resist these things that are carried out in our name, but without our consent. Well, we thank you so much, David, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary Young Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the damage wrought by Hurricane Ida and how capitalism drives climate change. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation by Tina Landis, an organizer and author of the book Climate Solutions Beyond Capitalism. Tina, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Tina, Hurricane Ida uh, struck Louisiana on the 16th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina, a storm that changed that city forever really. And, you know, some of the damage is already quite apparent. I mean, reportedly more than a million people uh, left without power and just, I mean, just an incredible uh, uh, lack of serious response 
from governments, I think, at different levels. I mean, about two days before the storm hit, uh, Latoya Cantrell, who's the mayor of New Orleans, uh, she issued a mandatory evaction order, and this is just 48 hours before, mind you, um, specifically for the areas outside the levee system, but did not order a full city evacuation because she said that there wasn't enough time to redirect traffic and all of that. And so her response was basically to tell people to write it out and, and, and hunker down. And so, you know, what's striking me, Tina, is how capitalism is clearly driving the climate change that is intensifying hurricanes like Ida on the one hand. And then on the flip side, uh, we have uh, governments at different levels that seem completely uh, ill-equipped to properly respond. And so how do you see the system making disasters like Ida just that much more worse? Right. I mean, capitalism, capitalism puts no effort into, into services for the people until they're absolutely forced to. And even then it's, it's very minimal. I mean, if you just looking at how Cuba deals with hurricanes, you know, they get, they bear the brunt of these storms. Like they get hit with major storms constantly, and they have the lowest death rate in, you know, the whole region from hurricanes because they have a detailed preparedness plan that leaves no one behind. Under capitalism, you know, the poor and working class can't always actually leave when they're, when they're asked to evacuate, even, you know, even these minimal orders to evacuate. They can't meet because they don't have a vehicle. They don't have the economic means to pay for a hotel. They, you know, but the state itself, the system doesn't, worry about that. You know, it doesn't put the, the effort into taking care of people. And as climate change unfolds, you know, it's going to become more and more of an impact on the working class of this country. And largely, our Congress people are millionaires, and their corporate backers are billionaires, and they are largely, you know, immune to all these climate impacts because, you know, they're rich. They can move to another home. They can, you know, whatever, fly to another part of the country. Um, whereas the rest of us are left behind to fend for ourselves. And it's just such a sick system. I mean, not just New Orleans, but like huge areas of the Gulf Gulf Coast actually got hit harder, like a foot, you know, a foot of rain and, you know, whole towns are flooded. 90% of the housing is underwater, like, you know, and nothing is going to be done to really give relief to these people. Yeah. And, you know, I think that it's important that we do continue to point out the anniversary of Hurricane Katrina in relation to this storm and just the lack of preparedness that city and state governments and honestly the federal government uh, 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 embarked upon after Katrina, after the disaster that was Katrina, because it wasn't as if Katrina was like a once in a lifetime hurricane. The Gulf Coast and that region of the country sees hurricanes all of the time, but nothing was done by the city of New Orleans, by the state of Louisiana or any of the surrounding states or really anywhere in this country to shore up the infrastructure, to prepare, uh, better prepare for these kinds of natural disasters. And nothing was done to provide for those people, Tina, who, as you said, couldn't afford to leave, can't afford to evacuate, can't go anywhere. And there were no places, no shelters provided for people to be safe, to ride out the storm, other than to tell them to just stay in their homes that are being damaged by the storm itself. 
and to leave them by themselves to fend for themselves. I mean, I feel like that is uh, not just wrong. I feel like that's a crime and, and really a sin that, as you said, we have millionaire politicians who did nothing uh, in the aftermath of uh, a horrible disaster of Hurricane Katrina. And now we're seeing it again and again and again. Right. I mean, for decades, scientists have been telling us that this is this is coming and that it's coming fast and there needs to be action. And the capitalist governments of this of this country, of the world, really, have taken very little action. And that's because it's not in their interest to take action. Like, you know, they're they're completely profiting from this system. You know, um, one in four Congress people have individual investments in fossil fuel in the stock market. You know, that's a conflict of interest. This is a class war. They actually, it is in their interest to continue to ignore this and to really do as little as possible for people. Unless, of course, there's a people's movement and we rise up and we demand action. We demand change. Because otherwise, it's really, you know, it's it's going good for them. <laughs> they're still profiting from fossil fuels. They're still, you know, they're profiting from, you know, now investing in disaster relief programs and, you know. It's it's a very, very sick and inhumane system. And that's why the people themselves need to organize to make this change, to make, to demand action from the government. Because we need to prepare, we need to adapt, we you know, and as well as mitigate, you know, climate change. I mean, there are solutions to climate change. We need to end fossil fuels. We need to restore ecosystems. It's all possible, but without the government really, you know, it's without them really representing the people, which they do not, um, we're going to continue on this road. Definitely. And I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's, it's sad to see sort of the, the trickle down effect of how the lives and health of poor working and oppressed people are, are cast aside and how that sort of discarding of humanity sort of piles up. And I mean, one example I'm thinking of specifically is that Hurricane Ida uh, ripped the roof off of the Lady of the Sea General Hospital in Galliano, Louisiana. Now, you're talking about Louisiana, a state that is already having to deal with overflowing hospitals because of a surge of the coronavirus, right? And so when I talk about the trickling down effect, I'm talking about the fact about how the U.S. capitalist government abandoned the American people as the coronavirus pandemic spread here in this country, which is precisely what caused the hospitals in Louisiana and elsewhere in the country to overflow to begin with. And then the lack of real structure or preparedness or the kind of critical structure that is needed during uh, uh, incidents like a hurricane, also driven by capitalism, sort of just, you know, uh, uh, exacerbates that already very serious issue. And you talked about the importance of building um, a people's movement around climate change. And I mean, it's just so clear that that's what it's going to take here, Tina. And I mean, we've already been seeing lots of grassroots efforts to furnish aid to the people of the Gulf Coast and to Louisiana following uh, the ravages of Hurricane Ida. We saw groups like the Cajun Navy, you know, getting together these volunteer rescue efforts and things like that. And, you know, it just always seems it always seems like the people, the masses of folks are always ready and willing and step up to do what the government that has all these resources refuses to do. I mean, I think we've definitely seen that through um, some mutual aid efforts 
throughout the course of the pandemic up until this point. And I mean, in situations like this, you know, groups are basically uh, standing in for this, you know, a lack of response from the government. So I feel like we see the potential of what the masses of people can do in situations like this and communities taking care of each other when the government refuses to, because it is a refusal. It's not that they don't have the resources to provide the service and aid that is needed. They choose not to furnish it. And if you listen to this show, you hear me say this all the time and you'll hear me say it again because we really have to get our minds around that because that helps us understand that we have no help coming from the capitalist government. And if we do, Tina, to the point you made earlier, it more than often isn't enough. It isn't to the extent that is needed. So it seems that what's going to make all the difference moving forward, both with relief efforts with Hurricane Ida and so many other issues, it's really going to take uh, developing that movement to really push for all these things. Right. It really shows that that the people want a cooperative society, that the, actually the people want socialism, you know, that it could, that it would work here and dispels the myth that, oh, in, in the U.S. it could never work because, you know, people are individualists and all this. No, the people at the top are individualists, but everyone else, you know, actually cares about their communities and, and you know, the transition to socialism would actually be a logical and easy solution to all of these problems where the people decide how the resources are used and work together to, to solve the climate crisis, to solve all the problems of society. Because the resources, like you said, are there. We're in the wealthiest country in the world. But yet there's so little given to the people, so little support, especially even in these times of, of real crisis. Yeah. And, you know, the idea that individual people can, you know, band together and, and you know, we can, we can mutual aid ourselves out of the ravages of climate catastrophe. And I'm not at all saying that we shouldn't come together uh, as a community and support each other with mutual aid. But climate crisis is not the kind of thing that individual people in this country can overcome and withstand on our own, especially, Tina, since it wasn't individual people who created the climate crisis. It was a small number of corporations that contributed a significant percentage of their pollution and their policies that exacerbated this climate crisis. But they put the responsibility, they put the onus on individual people. You know, so, I mean, how do you see us going forward helping to convince people that it's not recycling, it's not, it's not, uh, you know, solar power that individual people are going to be able to, to purchase, but it is a massive response from the corporations and the government that is going to be needed to address these situations where we're not going to be sitting here in two years, five years, having another discussion about governments that left people to be ravaged by a storm and to pick up the pieces by themselves. Right. It is. It's the system. It's a system of endless growth, of complete exploitation of everything on the planet, making everything a commodity that has gotten us into this place in the first place. It's the 1% richest of the world. And yeah, we need, we need a transformation of society. We need a transformation of how we live in relationship to the planet. We need, you know, massive ecological restoration campaigns and an immediate shift to um, renewable energy, real renewable energy, wind, solar, small-scale water, small scale water, you know, 
immediately. We can't, like you said, we can't, it's not, oh, a few people buy some electric vehicles and put solar panels on the roofs and it will all be good. Like, yeah, it's a, it's a system itself that exploits the planet constantly. And that's how we got in this place in the first place. But yeah, but individuals can act in, by organizing our communities, organizing and pressuring the government to make action in the end to rise up and change the system to a socialist system where we actually control, <laughs> where we are our own representatives, right? We are the most knowledgeable. We know what needs to happen. The scientists, the ecologists, the, the people from our communities who know the problems, who understand the solutions and can really represent the people and make it happen. Definitely. And, you know, Tina, I was just thinking about the fact that this is all coming. Hurricane Ida, this is all coming just a few weeks after the, the climate report from the U.N. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was just really raising the alarm about how serious the climate issue is. And when you just sit back and think about all the converging crises of capitalism that are happening all at once, I mean, it, it honestly feels like we're reaching a point where we'll either have socialism, we'll either have a revolutionary transformation of the system, or we'll have Societal collapse because we have uh, the climate, we have millions of people under threat of eviction because of the blocking of uh, the moratorium from the conservative majority Supreme Court, a completely, you know, unelected body of uh, wealthy lawyers, mostly, and all of these things. And so, you know, the more time goes on, the more it only seems like <laughs> there really only is one solution. And that solution is a new system and a new society that will basically pull the United States back from uh, being in the grips of a death cult because that's what this system is. We see it with Hurricane Ida. We see it with the coronavirus pandemic. We see it with the uh, eviction moratorium. We see it with uh, the economic situation. At every level, we're being shown the inhumanity of capitalism. And as we've been saying, it is really going to take a people's movement with a socialist program to really address those issues and to put humanity at the center of society instead of on the margins. But with that, Tina, we want to thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guides for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about labor struggles in the Midwest. And we're very happy to be joined for this conversation today by Taft Mangus, an organizer with Laborers Local 329 in Lima, Ohio. Taft, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me, Sean. I'm glad to be here. We're really glad that you are here to shed some light on this issue that's going on in Lima, Ohio, that Unless you're there, we don't know that it's happening. This, I think, is a very important labor struggle, as in the past week, 
uh, workers gathered uh, in the summer heat to protest the decision by Sonovas, which is the owner of a large oil refinery uh, there in Lima, to bring around 3,000 workers from outside of Ohio to work on the facility during the scheduled maintenance shutdown of the facility. Now, in the past, this work has been contracted to local or Ohio workers, and most of whom are in unions. And that's important because being in a union guarantees the workers a living wage and decent benefits. But the move to bring in non-union workers, mostly from Texas, ironically, has thousands of Lima residents who've been working at the plant, union members for generations, some of them asking why they've been uh, uh, overlooked for this work and what they're supposed to do now for work. So I'm wondering, you know, Taft, if you can give us some insight into Sonovas, their uh, reasonings for this decision, and what you all are doing to push back against this uh, uh, very uh, 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 destructive and disruptive uh, decision by the company to take jobs from people. So the reasons they have, uh, they've kind of stuck with their talking points. Um, they said that it's we don't have the manpower to staff these jobs that we have consistently done for the 136-year history of the refinery. They say that they have safety concerns about the union contractors um, and their training as well. Um, that's uh, and you know they're they're kind of hide. The, the bidding process uh, has been behind closed doors, so they're not being very forthcoming with the refinery's um, bidding process. They've deflected. Uh, Sonovas just purchased the refinery at the first of the year, so they said that this was um, a decision made by the former owner, Husky Energy, which really this was just – it wasn't um, – Husky and Sonovas kind of consolidated and merged together. Now, the people, the decision makers and the shot callers inside the refinery just changed name tags. So this decision was, they, they'd like to say that it was made by this other company, another Canadian-owned company, um, but really it was made by the people here at the local level. And um, we know through all, all the decisions that they've given us that this is about money. Um, the company paid, we, we believe that Husky was overvalued, so they paid too much money for the company, and they're trying to restructure, and they have a stated goal of slashing their the global workforce for Sonovas uh, by 15% <clears throat> in the coming years. So how we're fighting back, um, we started off um, with a grassroots uh, campaign. We went to the Juneteenth event was one of the first things we did, started uh, spreading our message, which is Ohio Jobs for Ohio Workers, and that was really the cornerstone to the campaign. Uh, it's not it's nonpartisan. It's just about Ohio Workers for Ohio Jobs. We started training our members, um, making them aware of the issues, uh, not only with the refinery, but how right to work is going to affect us, how not having prevailing wage um, and our prevailing wage work in our area is going to affect us. And then telling showing the members that this is this is their plan. This would be the just the first of many dominoes to fall. Uh, we have other industrial plants in our area 
and they utilize the same union contractors for manpower. So it's not uncommon for us to work at, you know, many different facilities um, with the same contractor. So we're fighting back by training our members. We're holding job actions. We've gathered, we've gathered over 2,000 petition signatures. Um, we've done some food drives in the refinery manager's neighborhoods, uh, collecting food for displaced workers uh, affected by the refinery's decision to not use local labor. Um, let's see. We've held a, we held a town hall um, in which they declined to participate uh, which was not not unsurprising, but they really uh, they really hold their cards close to the vest. And anytime you try to reach out to them for comments or further information, they defer you to the company's headquarters up in Calgary. Uh, we've we've gotten unanimous resolutions of uh, you know bipartisan support from our city councilors and uh, local townships in the area. Uh, we've also partnered with uh, different organizations and lawmakers. Um, we have a, a mayoral candidate who's been a huge supporter. Uh, Rep, uh, Rep, U.S. Rep. Tim Ryan has spoken at our rallies. Uh, the NAACP is on board with us and other community activist groups. Uh, we're, we're participating in, in anything uh, and anywhere that there's people. We've got yard signs out, uh, done radio ad campaigns, lots of different stuff. Uh, and they, this company really cherishes their image. They like to talk about how they're community partners and, you know, they like to manufacture consent amongst the local media uh, by donating to the Rotary, the Rotary Foundation and uh, United Way here in Lima. Um, they're doing the best they can to uh, to just manufacture consent, and uh, you know, hopefully that this is. They hope that this is more palatable uh, than what it actually is. You know, the raw numbers are 3,000 workers, 1.7 million man hours, and 70 million dollars in wages. That's on benefits. That's just wages. So, in addition to that, uh, they they're paying these guys about 16 bucks an hour to come in here and do our work. That we we get about double those wages, and then they are also paying them uh, per diem. That per diem, not only so, not only do these guys not live here, they don't have homes, cars, families here, attend the schools. They are getting this per diem. That money is being sent right back to wherever their families are or wherever they're from, without being taxed. That's a majority of the money that they're getting is that per diem, and it's being extracted, directly extracted from our community to the tune of about $1.5 million per week. Uh, so it's it's not only going to affect the workers, it's going to affect businesses, schools, roads, churches, all the infrastructure is going to be affected by this. And we're just awakening the members, business owners, and the larger community to this because I would describe Lyme, Ohio as most prototypical Rust Belt town you've ever been to. Our population has been declining for 30 years. We've seen, uh, you know, industry and employers uh, flee the community 
or the southern states or Mexico or, or China. We depend a lot on manufacturing in this community. And uh, this, is, this is the next domino to fall in the, uh, the story of Lima and, and, and our Rust Belt past. You know, Taft, what you said about uh, Sonovas trying to present themselves as community partners uh, and, uh, you know, doing all of this charitable uh, uh, work, you know, with United Way and other organizations and such and such like that. How do you see their actions in paying non-union workers who do not live in the Lima uh, community or in Ohio at all, non-union wages uh, and certainly not uh, union benefits. How do you see that action in the context of the uh, company um, engaging in union busting? Because at the center of this issue is that the company is not as financially viable as they were before, as you stated, they were uh, overvalued. Husky paid too much money for the company. And they're trying to make up that loss by pitting workers against one another, by literally exploiting workers with lower wages and kicking union workers and wages to the curb, but also kind of discouraging the other workers against unionism. Do you see this action by Synovus as also a union-busting attempt? So I'll just go back to what you said at the beginning. You talked about wages and benefits of being in the union. But for me, it's representation. Uh, Representation at work uh, is very important to me. I was always proud to be a steward on the job. I never wanted to be in supervision. So this is definitely union busting. So when you have no representation at work, you have these language barriers, you have uh, what we would call green workers with little to no experience working in the refinery, it's easier to get them to do things that are going to put themselves at risk. So we are actively engaging with the workers that are here and telling them, hey, this is what we get paid. These are our benefits. We have higher standards uh, for safety on the job, and they are trying to pit the workers versus workers. They want our workers, our maintenance workers that are still in there through the shutdown to train the, the incoming contractors how to do our jobs. We've heard reports of uh, the scaffolders come in first for pre-shutdown work to build the scaffolders so the boilermakers and pipefitters have access to the areas in the plant. So they're building the scaffold, which is, it's very, it's more complex than it sounds. Everything has to be inspected. It has to be safe. You have to measure your openings. You're only allowed to be within certain parameters that it has to be safe. So they're coming in and doing the rough building. And then our maintenance workers that have been out there for generations, some of them in the trades come in and bring them up to par. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's exactly union busting, and uh, we hate to see it. We really do. We expect better from this this company. And a lot of these, the plant managers, you know, live in our community. They do live outside, you know, in the suburbs, like you would expect. Um, but they do attend our schools and churches. And uh, we, re- we really focus on shaming 
uh, those people that are making these decisions in the refinery. It's just union busting is disgusting. And uh, that, that's what they're really trying to do. When we first found out that they were going non-union for this shutdown, they, let, they slipped up. And they said that the company was going to save tens of millions of dollars by employing these Gulf Coast workers. They haven't said it since, but it's very obvious to us that this is a corporate greed cost-saving measure. And we're really disappointed. You know, we've been in this community for generations. So this is really disappointing. And we just want to go back to work. Definitely. And I mean, you know, this this idea of uh, a corporation sort of pretending to be a community partner. I mean, that's just so typical to where they present themselves as, oh, well, you know, we're not trying to come over and take anything or, or take anyone's job. But I mean, in reality, it's oftentimes just kind of a, a face-saving measure and really more of a, a public relations thing. Meanwhile, the livelihood of all these workers are, are really under attack and their ability to organize under attack as well, as you were just saying, Taft. And as such, these kinds of labor struggles are just so important. But with that, we're going to leave it there for now here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call here by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube at BAM Necessary. <laughs> then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio. Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. And they can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. and. I have a couple of pieces of really good news to share here at the top of the hour. Number one, our YouTube stream is back. I'm mm -hmm. looking at it right now. And so uh, for our uh, chat community, if you want to stay on Facebook, if you want to go back to YouTube to get that old thing back, 
It is ultimately up to you. Um, but also uh, happening today, and this is uh, just happened not long before the hour hit, a statewide grand jury in Colorado has returned a 32-count indictment against five people who were involved in the death of 23-year-old Elijah McClain in Aurora, Colorado, two years ago. Now, these five people are three police officers and two paramedics. They were each charged with one count of manslaughter and one count of criminally negligent homicide. And, you know, this was the center of a really intense struggle there in Aurora, Colorado. We talked about it here on the show. And not only that was a site of real political repression uh, because of our comrades in Denver who were facing decades in prison because of their large, successful, organized marches demanding justice for Elijah McClain, who was stopped, who was crushed, who was shot up with with drugs in a dosage fit for someone, you know, many times his size. I mean, it really is just incredible what was done. Incredible in its criminality, I should say. And so uh, it appears as though they're bringing some into account. And luckily, those uh, major charges against our comrades in Colorado were dropped. So big shout out to them. But this is what happens. I mean, I, you know, I was reading Mumia Abdul-Jamal's book not long ago, Have Black Lives Ever Mattered? And he was talking about Ferguson. And he was saying how a new generation of organizers are seeing the wages of black resistance. And the wages of black resistance are repression, repression, and more repression. And so you and I have to keep fighting. We have to keep organizing because it is only this pressure from below that will bring about these changes. But be that as it may, we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Mr. James Early, former director of cultural heritage policy at the Center for Folklife and Cultural Heritage at the Smithsonian Institution and board member of the Institute for Policy Studies. Mr. Early, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Mr. Early, I want to start today by asking a broad question because I've been thinking about the converging crises of U.S. capitalism and of U.S. imperialism that seem to all be imploding at the very same time. We're seeing yet again what is happening with climate change, with the way that Hurricane Ida is affecting the state of Louisiana and the Gulf Coast. Of course, you know, we had some good news with the Elijah McClain case, but uh, racist police terror still continuing. We were talking earlier this week about the killing of Antoine Gilmore here in D.C. Well, the police have shot somebody else since then. So that continues, of course, millions of people, millions of children under threat of being evicted and put into the streets because of the blocking of the eviction moratorium, continued unemployment and economic issues being felt all across the board. Pandemic continues to rage because of this system's ongoing refusal to give people the resources they need. And it really is starting to feel, Mr. Early, that we're moving to a point in this country where we're faced with a choice. Either we'll have a new system or we'll have a complete collapse. Now, I don't want to overstate the situation. I don't think we'll, you know, uh, be facing a revolutionary crisis here in the U.S. tomorrow or the next day. But it is, to me, starting to feel like things are starting to come to a head on a number of levels and it really may be only a matter of time 
before uh, uh, the consciousness of the masses of people in this country, the popular conscience, if you will, will seriously begin to question this capitalist system. And when you talk about the people who are technically classified as poor in this country, I'm talking about just based on the numbers that they have. It's a certain amount of money for a family of four a year, right? Although even that, I think, is playing it short. We're talking about millions of people, millions of people raised and reared in a society where their consciousness, their education has been one designed to have them complicit and advocate for the capitalist system that exploits us all. We're taught that this is the greatest system there ever was and all these sorts of things. We're taught that whatever the United States does is basically correct. And I think as that lie becomes more and more apparent, I think the question becomes, what can be done? How can tens of millions of minds be brought over to the idea of a new society in a new system? What should a socialist program look like in the United States in the 21st century? Right. And as someone who has seen revolutionary processes play out in different parts of the world over the years, I'm just wondering how you situate that given this particular point in history that we're at right now here in the United States. Wow, that is um, quite a question. I think it uh, sets the primary context for how people should examine uh, all of their uh, individual community national lives and how we're situated in the global context. Indeed, uh, crisis, uh, and it's the most simple definition of not functioning normally, uh, which does not mean that functioning normally is necessarily positive, but uh, not being able to be predictable uh, in terms of normality, I think certainly characterizes what we are facing here inside the U.S., and what the U.S. as a nation-state is facing in the context of the global relations of nations. Uh, You have talked about the objective circumstances of climate change, um, as well as uh, this global um, COVID pandemic. Uh, Objective in the sense that um, they are not uh, in the imagination of people. They actually have a one-to-one ratio on the quality of life, uh, and the subjective factor that is how people see themselves correctly or incorrectly, how they see their government uh, correctly or incorrectly, uh, there is this huge gap between what they see and what they're told and what they expect in relationship to what is actually happening to them. So in the context of the COVID-19, we have seen here in the United States Uh, a stark revelation of the working class of color and gender, um, including poor white working people who are the primary victims uh, of the inefficiencies of a commodified, uh, privatized uh, system uh, of health uh, in the face of uh, the so-called liberal party which stands against universal health care in the Biden-Harris administration. So people are are seeing that up close and are able to make uh, some basic, simple deductions that something is uh, wrong here, something does not fit practically 
and that it does not fit uh, morally. Nevertheless, the deep socialization in uh, the official line of uh, the American ethos as being, quote-unquote, God's country, as being a superpower, of being unprecedented in the history of civilization, uh, continues to limit uh, people's simple deduction into corresponding action, that is, to challenge the system, to critique the system, uh, not just in its component parts, but in its overall uh, formation, and to select representatives from among them, governance representatives, who will be true to the basic objective needs like universal health care, uh, like the protection of the environment, and where, again, the racialized and class dimensions of this is that the people who get hit hardest by climate change, whether it's induced by human beings and or is uh, simply a, nat- uh, a natural uh, evolution and recomposition of nature of which we are a part, affects uh, most systemically, most characteristically, uh, in this country, people of color. In the world, it affects people of color, uh, women in rural areas, working-class women and children. Now, what is preventing us from having a more holistic alternative view? Uh, Not only is it the official narrative put forth by prominent members of individual communities or by members of government or by religious figures, but it is the mass media, particularly the so-called liberal mainstream media, uh, which accepts the underlying propositions uh, that I laid out earlier. This is God's country. It is the foremost democracy in the world, so forth and so on, uh, not dealing with the facts and selectively determining what information will be given to people so that the mass media, in my view, becomes a major target of public organization and critique and alternative media critique um, of mainstream media where the socialization about the U.S. being a singular a country uh, and these false values that we're carrying. So that's one part of the crisis. The other part of it has also to do with this propagation of the United States as a unique entity, when in effect the correlation of international forces has dramatically changed uh, with the emergence of China as a global uh, economic uh, power a global military power, and uh, interestingly, I would say uh, a global ideological power uh, in the sense that it is confronting uh, U.S. expansionism with a different kind of solidarity internationalism. And, of course, with that comes some downsides, like countries going into debt uh, to China in many instances. But China is developing infrastructure in those countries. Part of that is for the extraction of natural uh, resources and the dissemination of those resources back to China and other places of the world. But it redounds to the benefit of the population to have uh, public transportation in terms of trains and buses and roads uh, and this kind of infrastructure, which the U.S. has not been providing. The U.S. sets up military bases all around the world and has these ideals that it is feeding people. So that is another disjuncture in which people are feeling the weight of that at the very practical level is that um, much, if not most, of our inexpensive to cheap goods are coming from 
places like China and Vietnam uh, and the interruption by COVID of the international system of uh, production, distribution, and consumption, it's felt very heavily here as U.S. corporations, uh, capitalist corporations, have followed the logic of capital to go where they have to pay the least uh, to get products that they can raise high prices on. And so it has left the working class in the United States strained. And, of course, they fed the working class in xenophobia and racism against other people in the, uh, the world. But this is another underlying factor. From, with regard, to, and I'll stop on this point, with regard to a socialist program, uh, I think we have to start with where people are. I'm reminded mm. again of Amokal Cabral from Africa that people uh, are not fighting for ideas. They're fighting for filling their stomachs, putting a roof over their heads, uh, having safety and security, having adequate public transportation. And so it is in the concrete uh, interaction of where policy is not providing the basic necessities of life and where people are disenchanted, frustrated, grumbling, critiquing, organizing, uh, that we have to uh, situate the vision of socialism starting with the practical issues, not just the ideological issues. And so uh, those, I think, are some obvious things. And I said I would stop, but I will stop on this. There was a recent article in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago on how, in effect, democratic socialists who seek to harmonize uh, the, uh, the crudeness between capitalist exploitation and workers' needs to make it uh, more humane, not as super exploitative, but not to, not to undermine or overthrow the system, have emerged uh, to be power players in the duopoly of Democrats and Republicans who control the, the governance system in this country. Now, one can put forth an ideal socialist program and say, well, these are not real socialists, uh, and I'm not going to support that. But that is where millions of people are. They didn't just walk into the state houses and the halls of Congress. Uh, that is where the consciousness of the American public and its progressive dimension has emerged. And we have to work with that and mature that uh, through the trials and tribulations of real life. And that is where deeper consciousness and the consciousness of a socialist outlook uh, can emerge, but through the practice of political engagement, uh, not just through declaration. Yeah, and you're touching on something very, very important, Mr. Early, and that's the fact that we have to be scientific about how we approach this question. We cannot operate under conditions that we desire to be. We can't act as though things as the way we want them to be. We have to address things as they are. Every revolutionary effort, every revolutionary effort that has happened throughout history has done this. And this is why they've been successful. They took a very sober, very well-informed approach to what they were trying to do. And this is how they were able to carry things forward very seriously. And see, I think an issue with a lot of people today, and I think, I think social media has an aspect of it. I think, you know, the, the, the hyper-individualism of this system, which I think has you know, really only you know, been intensified by this um, reactionary automation that, that we're going through. It's, it's, it's like folks want a shortcut to the revolutionary consciousness or to the revolutionary transformation of society. There's no shortcut to any of this. It's a long, difficult, 
unglamorous, unsexy, non-Instagrammable process. It's, it's, it's not the romance of the black and white photos of triumphant gorillas with their guns and berets. That's a frozen moment in time. And we just have to be very sober-minded with the way that we approach things. And we can never hope to bring the masses of folks into this broad movement if we're not clear on sort of where they all actually are And I think above all else, if we're not actually tapped in to what it is that they want and what it is that they need. Right. And this goes back to uh, what you were saying from Cabral, Mr. Early. And so I I think a a measure of humility is definitely needed and a whole lot of seriousness is really needed. And I think we do best by having a real sort of estimation of the landscape, both locally and in a national sense, and internationally. And this is how we come to have, I think, a clear understanding of what must be done, and we can then begin to move toward that. But we're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Mr. James Early. And Jackie, I was thinking about Something Mr. Early said a little earlier in our conversation when he talked about how the United States sees itself as, quote unquote, God's country. And that's deep, really. Right. Because it was, first of all, it was a religious institution that even led to the discovery of the Americas. Because Christopher Columbus was sponsored by, you know, the Catholic monarchy. Of Spain and religion, a particular brand, I think we should call it, of Christianity was used to justify the genocide against the indigenous people. It was used to justify the enslavement of African people. And to this very day, there are people that think that war is a blessed institution and that God wants us to go about the earth, you know, maiming and pillaging and And, you know, blowing up whole families like the U.S. just did in Afghanistan, right? That ain't the first family to be killed in that way by the U.S. government, not by a long shot. But Christianity was also the faith of Nat Turner. It was also the faith of Denmark Vesey and Henry McNeil Turner and so many other revolutionaries throughout our history, right? And so when we talk about God's country, The United States sort of uses that, I think, in a way to say that our imperialism, our white supremacy, our misogyny, our anti-LGBTQ bigotry is divine, right? Because you can't argue with that. If, if, If God blesses our oppression, then it must be good, right? So then, Jackie, as as a radical person of faith and a person with the radical faith, 
What do you think it means to reclaim this concept of God's country, turning it back into a place that centers the least of these, right? Not the money changers that Jesus chased up out the joint, right? So it's like, you know, from a theological standpoint and sort of having to grapple with what so many mainline churches promote that is against the interests of poor working and oppressed people. I mean, how do you how do you reconcile that as a radical person of faith? I mean, the first where I start is actually where you left off with the fact that Jesus did go into the temple and take a whip and beat the money changers out. So, Mm -hmm. you know, early in my faith, I, I, I didn't understand the importance of that action. Uh, And it was certainly not taught as the revolutionary action against capitalist exploitation that it actually is. But as I came to understand who the person of Jesus is as portrayed in the Bible, as what he said and what he did, how he did hang out with the absolute least of those in ancient society at the time, then that's where I started. And it's like you look at what Jesus said and what he did, the fact that he hung out with prostitutes and and hung out with women, didn't even have to be prostitutes, but hung out with women who at the time really were like the least of society. They weren't even considered people. He gave women the gospel to take to their whole communities. You know, he (laughs) advocated for women's rights, if you want to call it that, when he met the woman allegedly caught in quote-unquote adultery and, you know, pointed out that, like, uh, where are all the people who are accusing you? And by the way, where's the dude that you were in adultery with? Yeah, so when you look at the, the, the radical revolutionary Jesus and everything he did and said was radical and revolutionary, he was executed by the state. That's right. Because he was a threat both to the power of the state over the oppressed people, but he was also a threat to the established religious order at the time, which would we could equate that to the establishment of today. And then I look at that, and then I look at everything else in the Bible, especially the Pauline doctrine, all of the stuff that tells us to obey, all of the stuff that tells us that we're supposed to do and, and um, uh, acquiesce to people who wield unjust authority over us. And it's supposed to be okay because that's how we're going to be blessed. And I look at these two dichotomies in the Bible and you study the history and you realize that some of that stuff is just BS, right? (laughs) Right? You realize you've got, you really have two different doctrines in one holy text, if you want to call it that. And, And the Western Bible doesn't even have all the books that are in the Bible. But you've got two different doctrines. You've got the doctrine of Jesus Christ, which is revolutionary and quite socialist, run around feeding people for free and giving healing people for free and all this kind of stuff. But you've also got the doctrine of empire, Mm. which is very and that is the Pauline doctrine, which is very authority focused, which is very obedience focused. And where we get all of this stuff about, you know, obeying authority and not questioning. and, And this is why people. So many Christians believe that war is a good thing. Domination of people who 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 we consider to be less than ourselves is a good thing and it's divine. And and those two ideologies don't mix. 
Jesus and the manifest destiny, Christianity, uh, ideology of domination, they're not the same thing. So (laughs) in a weird way, for me, taking back my faith, my revolutionary faith, it's just focusing on who Jesus really was. And it's ironically the very part of the Bible that the same manifest destiny Christians, mostly conservative, but not entirely, definitely not all conservative, that part of Jesus, the, the revolutionary, radical, socialist, anti-authoritarian, you know, that Jesus, um, he's the one they never talk about. Right. So as a person of faith, he's the one I have to talk about. You know, so so that that's how I look at it. And, it, and it's a very uncomfortable conversation to have in leftist circles because of the damage that's been done by the the right wing manifest destiny Christians. And, and that's that's a conversation we can't shrink away from, because in order to really reclaim this faith and use it for a force for good for the people, we, we have to we have to take the garbage out. Definitely. And, you know. On that note, real quick, I feel like I have to say, you know, for progressive people, for left wing people, socialist, communist, revolutionaries, we will have to grapple with faith and faith institutions and people of faith. And we're talking about building a movement. So, you know, don't get to thinking that you're like smarter than someone who's a person of faith or you're more sophisticated than them or you feel like religion is some kind of hindrance. Doing that, you overlook broad swaths of the progressive and radical histories of uh, uh, different religions. And, um, you know, this is just something that you will have uh, uh, to deal with, I think, particularly in communities of color in in a lot of sense. So I think that's something else we have to be realistic about and should be, you know, willing to do. But we have a couple of callers on the line here. Thunderbird, tell us what's on your mind. Hello, Ace Guanxi. Um, I am Thunderbird. I'm from the Jamestown Sklallam tribe. Um, And I was going to talk today about how I was criminalized by the Portland Police Bureau for going to a candlelight vigil of Robert Delgado. He was a houseless man that the Portland Police Bureau had shot in an area, the one area in the city that they were not supposed to go. It was supposed to be mental health crisis team answering calls, and they still killed somebody. So I had gone to this vigil And the police targeted my car for the artwork that was on it because it was facing the wrong way down the damn street. And no other cars were ticketed, so I know that my car was targeted. So I had tried to fight it in court. And as evidence for the cop's bias, I had tried to use his history of racial profiling that is documented. However, because he settled outside of court, I could not use his racial profiling history in evidence. And that's the, what I wanted to bring up today is that you can't bring, bring up cops' racial profiling history if they settle outside of court. And this shows just how working within the system, even to benefit your own self, if you want to make a deal with the police or whatever, that benefits you, but then it hurts everybody else in the future for the next generations. Yeah, well, we appreciate that uh, from you, Thunderbird. And, you know, as you were describing that, I also thinking was also thinking about how, you know, oftentimes when the police brutalize or kill someone, if they have a history of racism, it's often hidden and swept under the rug and is found out later and is often treated in a way as if it has no bearing 
on this particular racist killing. So there's always, you know, a kind of cloak and dagger game with the racist history of some police officers, which is just, you know, further proof of the racist nature of the police as an institution. But we have another caller on the line here. Wesley, tell us what's on your mind. Yeah, I just want to say real quick, uh, the last thing uh, Jackie was saying about, you know, the historicalness of how Jesus was so spot on. I mean, I was uh, raised in a conservative Christian family, and I'm not Christian no more, but even going to, like, religious school, studying the Bible, like, none of the conservative values hardly line up with what Jesus actually said. But I was going to call about the union thing. I know for a fact how hard it is to try to, you know, unionize place, the union busting and all that, because I was part of our Walmart Mm. two years when I worked at Walmart, and, you know, put it this way, like, one day I came in on my day off with an all Walmart shirt and the, the head manager of the store just scowled at me. Then a month later I asked to, you know, get transferred. He was a okay with transferring me. And then, so I left Walmart eventually tried to get back and a manager in another store wanted me, but she said I was on a do not hire list. Wow. I, I didn't get fired or anything. I put in a two week and quit and went to another job. But you know, like, they literally put me on a do not hire list and it's tough out there because, you know, workers are trying to get these things, but you know, whether like at Walmart, we called it the U word, the union word, because you know, if you were caught talking about that, they'd start watching you. Like it got to the point one day where in California, we have a five hour law before your lunch, you have to go before the fifth hour. So I went and took my lunch at like four hours, 15 minutes. Went and sat down, ate my lunch, went to check the computer to when to clock in. I get called into the office when I'm back saying someone had reported me as going to eat and then clocking out, which wasn't what happened at all. And I told them, check the cameras, because if that were true, I would have went over my fifth hour. But that just showed me, you know, you try to, like, you know, put union ideas in the workplace, try to strive to make it a better, you know, a democratic-like workplace. You know, those companies, they're going to clamp down on you. They're going to make your life miserable. I got my hours cut, too. It's part of why I left. They started cutting my hours, too, for no reason. And mind you, I got employee of the month at Walmart four times in one year. Our store had over 300 employees. I still have the plaques on my wall till this day. It's like, you know, all this shows that it wasn't that I was a bad employee, but when you do the right thing and try to stick up for workers' rights at a lot of these places, you know, you're going to get busted, union busted pretty much. And that was all I wanted to say. And thank you guys for the great show today. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Wesley. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. I mean, it's really just not surprising in the least to hear that about Walmart. Just an absolutely brutal example of uh, worker exploitation and preemptive union busting. I mean, we know about those uh, videos that Walmart showed their workers trying to discourage them from organizing a union. This is the same Walmart that pays their employees so little that uh, they had to do food drives during the holidays for their own employees. So they will do that, but they won't just give them more money. And they're one of the wealthiest families in this country. So just just pretty gross uh, example of uh, how the bourgeoisie operates. But Mr. Early, quite a bit there between our opening comments and um, our two callers. So feel free to pull from any of it. First of all, thank you very much, uh, Jacqueline Lukeman, for that uh, exegesis of um, the Bible, a book I have never read. I, sh- I don't say that with pride. I say it as a fact, uh, since it's 
In fact, I say it's somewhat so critical because it has had such a tremendous impact on the world, along with the Quran, which I've not read either. And it means that people like myself need to become more acquainted um, with these stories, uh, with these histories, with these interpretations, because the vast majority of the people of the world are religious in some form or another. And uh, for those of us who look uh, to building a new world possible, uh, that new world will not be built without entertaining uh, the fundamental issue uh, of, of faith. It does not mean that we have to become religious individuals ourselves, but it does mean that we have to have a, a critically engaged, respectful approach uh, to religion. And in this context, you know, I have always uh, struggled. I think it was R.J. Lord who said you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tubes. Uh, and I think there's another way of looking at this. Uh, one of the master's tools was uh, the Christian religion and the colonization uh, and then the structure of capitalism. Uh, but we have seen the development of liberation theology turning those tools in and off on themselves into another direction, not just in the old Quaker fashion, speaking truth to power, but looking to displace the existing power to become a new power. And so that I think that is a construct that we have to look at. And this is not just a, an abstract analytical discussion. Every time uh, the president of the United States, uh, Biden, uh, ends his comments with, God bless our troops, uh, he is investing in empire and imperial direction, ultimately through uh, the use of military force. And we have to question that. We have to question whether or not the 16 or 17 or so veterans who are committing suicide every day uh, significantly related uh, to having been in the military and, and having uh, been destabilized psychologically or, and or physically. Uh, we have to question that and challenge that, and we have to pick up the liberation theology dimensions of Christianity in this instance, and the liberation dimensions of other cosmological views, uh, indigenous societies, in the case of when Evo Morales, the first Indian president of Bolivia, uh, instituted a ministry uh, of nature uh, to understand that we are a part of the larger complex of nature, as destructive as we might be. We are not in some kind of parallel universe, and nature constantly reminds us, as we are seeing with the hurricanes and the stupidity of us continuing uh, to build on un literally on unsolid ground. Um, so the these are, 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 are real questions. I just want to make one comment about this crisis moment where we started from. Uh, when things are not functioning as they normally, predictably might function, it presents great opportunity uh, to get with people who are rebelling against that. And again, this is the importance of elections as part of the overall political strategy, not as the political strategy, because this is the time when we take the temperature of the consciousness of people, uh, their readiness to invest in their own governance by selecting people who would meet their basic needs and basic as, uh, aspirations. And so it is critical at this moment um, in which this multi-pronged crisis of COVID, of climate, uh, the dysfunctionality 
of U.S. capitalism internally, uh, the defeat of U.S. military forces uh, around the world. For people to step forward in 2022 and 24, we have to put this in a time frame as well, not just an abstract trajectory of what would a socialist society look like, but what does society that we're living in actually look like and where are we making gains in that general direction with that kind of view and where we are not making gains and with whom. And so now is the time to really, really push very heavily uh, in maturing this uh, fraction battle, this split within the Democratic Party, and to help to really down spiral uh, into a total collapse of the Republican Party, not a revival of the Romney, John McCain, a Ukraine-oriented party, but to actually help it to deteriorate and to self-destruct and in these spaces uh, to create new people's aspirations of governance. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Mr. James Early is here. And... (laughs) I just saw your comment here, Jack. You said you had to make your, your grandmother stop watching Jim Baker. I'm sure that was quite a task. People love their um, televangelists. You know, that's a main way that what we today know as prosperity gospel or or what at one time was called Christian capitalism. That's how a lot of that um, actually spread was through those uh, sorts of things. Man, and them cats got caught up in all types of stuff. We ain't going to go there. Uh, we have another caller on the line here. Per, tell us what's on your mind. Hi, I really appreciate hearing what you all are saying, and especially what Jackie was saying regarding Jesus. I, I do um, believe, Jackie, that, that you're understating the case, however. I'm a very theologically and biblically conservative Christian. I'm an evangelist. I'm a preacher. Um, I'm kind of in that whole crowd. Um, and I believe that the Bible, from Genesis through the end of Revelation, solidly through, teaches the very same kind of revolutionary, anti-violent, socialist ideals that you're describing in Jesus. Just very briefly, and and authors have mentioned this, um, uh, the contrast between the call of Abraham to be blessed and therefore then to share the blessing with all nations, in in contrast to Babel, which hogs it all for itself, all the the way through the end of Revelation, where the, the order is to not recreate some you know, some some new dirt and new grass, but rather to reorder the very unjustly, humanly organized world into a place of justice and compassion. Um, and I and I believe you actually find that even in Paul, when he ventures to go to Rome to speak truth to power, to bring his message there. And ultimately, of course, 300 years later, that Roman Empire that was killing Christians was was saying, "Hey, we'll turn over authority to you." Lots of lots of problems emerged from that, I'm sure. But nevertheless. I think you have Bible from beginning to end advocating for anti-violent socialist revolution towards compassion and justice for all. Um, and I don't think you have to throw anything out to get there. I think you have to read it rather carefully, and I'm working on that myself. And I, and I do think that the author um, 
Amitabh Ghosh um, in The Great Derangement makes the argument that the, the only institution that can really bring about, and I probably, we probably wouldn't want to say only, but maybe one strong institution that can bring about this radical change are conservative religious folk. And I think if you look at population-wise, world majority is conservative religious folk. And a bunch of traditions I haven't studied well enough yet, but I, I imagine that we would find that this vast majority of people will join with us in, the, in advocating for this socialist, anti-violent justice and revolution as they recognize in their own sacred texts, as I'm discovering my own, that the teaching is for these values. Yo, thanks a lot, Per. Appreciate you calling in. And yeah, you know, your comment, it reminds me of like uh, really a discussion that, that happens a lot within movement circles and political circles, you know, whether the topic is faith or not. And that's the issue of you know, this word violence, right? And, and just what that means. Because even in the biblical sense, I mean, crucifying people, the state crucifying people, which is a, you know, a, a death penalty, right? Something we still grapple with to this day, just in a different form. That's violent, right? I mean, a, a, a systemic program of persecution against a people, say, for instance, the, the, the Christians of that period or the myriad forms that we could find in today's world is, in fact, violent. Matter of fact, if we're focusing on our current moment, the entirety of the capitalist system is violent against humanity and the environment and increasingly outer space itself, right? And so, you know, it, it, in my opinion, then, it isn't violent to resist that. You know, I'm reminded of, uh, of Fred Hampton when he said peace if you're willing to fight for it, right? And so in that fighting for peace, right, you're not fighting for the sake of simply being brutal to someone else, you're doing it for a specific reason in that the system you're fighting is violent. The institutions of that system are violent. And therefore, to bring about peace, you have to meet fire with water. But Jackie Lukeman, I'm curious your thoughts here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the this is and, and this always happens when when we talk about faith and Christianity and, and really just any any religious ideology and wouldn't and and keep in mind that faith and and religion are not relegated or not limited to Christianity and Islam. Faith and religion can be anything. They're just strongly held beliefs in whatever it is that you think is important. You know, atheism is a a religion. It is it is the belief that, you know, there is no God. That's and that's fine. I have no problem with that. But I think we do have to be honest about the Bible though. The Bible is probably one of the most violent books (laughs) that exists. I mean, if you want all kinds of lasciviousness and uh, a little bit of, of romance and a lot of violence and war, read the Bible. I mean, there are some incredibly brutal battle scenes in there, some horrific acts of violence. As you said, you know, Sean, uh, crucifixion. Uh, was was a horrific act of violence. And, and that's historically, that's grounded in the history of the Roman Empire and all that. But, you know, I, I think that when we do recognize that the canon of the Bible that we have now is the result of a political battle between leaders in Constantine's government, and these folks got together and decided, okay, this is what we'll put in this book, so that we will keep will this will keep us from killing each other then you kind of have to look at it and realize that if that's the way the canon of the bible that we have 
uh, was brought together, then what else in here is also politically motivated writings and culturally influenced writings? All the stuff about women keeping silent and that kind of thing. That's not revolutionary stuff. That's not, you know, that's not socialism, oppression of people, all the stuff, all the anti-homosexuality stuff. Not only is it misinterpreted uh, from original text, but that's not revolutionary. So I, I think that it is incorrect that the whole Bible is revolutionary and, uh, uh, you know, advocating socialism. But there are parts of the faith, which the Christian faith has roots in Africa. Um, and African spirituality is just as valid as Christianity and Islam. But I think it's also untrue that the whole Bible from beginning to end is revolutionary, is advocating revolutionary and socialism. Yeah. And, you know, Mr. Earl, I want to make a connection here uh, between this conversation about faith and our sort of broader discussion around the deep need for systemic change in the United States. And I was thinking of, uh, we're talking about Revelation, right? I mean, Revelation 21st chapter, it says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. And that in itself put me in mind of Martin Luther King Jr., who sort of echoed this when he said, I refuse to accept the idea that the isness of man's present nature makes him morally incapable of reaching up for the oughtness that forever confronts him. So what is King saying? What is this verse saying? It's saying that the way things are with all of its problems, all of its oppression and exploitation doesn't have to be. It's not fixed. So you and I are told that this system is the only thing that could ever be. It's just not so. Things are changing all the time. And so we can't become so demoralized and discouraged by how things are. That's the isness. We can't keep that. We can't let that keep us from fighting from the way things should be. That's the oughtness. And we're talking about King in anti-imperialist, anti-capitalist, revolutionary. That's not how he's taught to us now. He's been completely sanitized by the same state that killed him in the time since his death, right? But King was very clear about the triple evils of racism, economic exploitation, and war. He would say this in his uh, speeches, right? We were talking about the radicalizing of King that so often gets left out of his broader story. And Mr. Early, it's clear that those same dynamics King spoke to then are still very much in place now and that the U.S. still very much is, as King called it, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today. And there's that word again, violence, right? Because that's what imperialism is. You blow up a family in Afghanistan killing several children as violence. You have boots on the ground and drones and, and sanctions and, and blockades and all these sorts of things, regime change efforts, that's violence, right? And so taking these things into consideration, whether a person is of faith or whether they are not, it's clear that it will take a collective effort of all of us to create a situation and a society and a system that instead of being centered on death, is focused on bringing about life and life more abundantly. I, I think this 
also points up, you know, when we look at a figure like King, we should look at him as a social individual, uh, notwithstanding the extraordinary attributes of him as an individual. Remembering that as history unfolded, King did not start a movement. He was called to a movement by ordinary people uh, in Alabama uh, with the outlawing of the NAACP, which, who had organized themselves to continue their struggle under another umbrella, but with the same goals. And they needed a particular set of skills uh, to help ground that and to give a public face and articulation to that. And they called Martin Luther King to come to them. Uh, and they made a decision that, yes, you are the next complement that we need in our self-organization. And it's in the self-organization, the mobility of ordinary people, uh, particularly um, with working-class people who are concentrated around uh, different churches and places of faith, is one of the areas that progressives and socialists have to engage, particularly with the African-American community, in which the faith-based community was the protectorate of the human spirit, the human body, the human mind, the mutual assistance, uh, who understood their connection to Africa and the naming of their churches, uh, as opposed to being just an American, uh, grounding themselves. Uh, and this is where these are the sites of engagement. And when we look at religion in the United States today, where fundamentalist Christians, significantly white, our fellow white American citizens, that has got to be a site of engagement as well as the progressive site of engagement of the and other religious uh, expressions, whether it's in temple or whether it's in mosque. But uh, we have to be very suspect of the mechanical use of the phrase that religion is the opiate of the people. Situationally, that is a very powerful and significant statement to combat against idealism that it's in the afterlife, in the by and by that things will be better, right. rather than in the moment of engagement. And this is how liberation theology across Latin America, or James Cone and people of that ilk in the African-American community here in the United States, the late Vincent Harding, and all of those people. And King himself, we must remember that he was a militant nonviolent person. That is, he did not avoid violence. He stepped directly into it as a militant pacifist. But he understood that you have to expose the systemic violence of this society in order to invite and to show people a way that you could uproot it and transform it uh, into something else. And so, again, in this moment of crisis uh, and where people are looking for spiritual and faith uplift uh, to meet literally their daily bread and to protect themselves from the official violence of the state in the case of the ongoing violence of the police, uh, then the churches and other religious institutions are one of the sites that we do have to pay a lot more attention to. We cannot easily dismiss a Reverend Al for as many critiques as I might bring that he is in the center of that reality. And so it's one thing to have a critique, but we, this is a moment, again, going back to where we started our conversation today, 
on crisis, and meaning things are not operating in a predictable normality, which does not mean that they're good or bad, but just that is a predictable normality. Uh, This is a moment uh, for us to go to those institutions where people look at uh, how to change things. And again, these, these, these sites, these religious sites are, are one of the battlegrounds, of it, the battle of ideas. And it is also the battle of organization on the, uh, the uh, fascist, racist, homophobic uh, side where um, these vigilantes and these terrorists are emanating from. And on the progressive side, Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mr. Early, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So, as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.